Yeah, yeah, do some work. I gave John a hard time because at last service, he's like, this guy's incredible. He's hilarious. You're going to love it. And so this time he's like, he's mediocre. He's not that awesome. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I work up at the Irvine campus. I've been doing student ministries there for the past uh, eight years or so. And I'm really excited to be with you guys and to share uh, sort of the, the adventure of what I think God has for us this morning. Uh, the good news is we survived, right? What did we survive? The apocalypse, right? Let's give ourselves a hand. We made it. Woo, all those bunkers and things came into use. And no, they didn't at all. People wasted a lot of money. Uh, that's okay. Um, there might be a tornado or something. You never know. And so uh, we survived that. But even more importantly, we survived the craziness of Christmas, right? Christmas of all comfort and joy and wrapping paper and presents and screaming and eggnog and all the chaos. That is what Christmas, for whatever reason, has become. And yet, uh, and yet we, we, we made it through. And that's, that's unfortunately sometimes what Christmas has become for us, right? Hopefully you came to our Christmas Eve services and you're able to kind of get rooted in what the, what the real reason for Christmas is, the kind of the comfort and joy. We're going to build on some of that this weekend. My house, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old son named Asher, and uh, he just now kind of understands the, the wrapping and the the, the, the ripping of presents and things, and so my living room now looks like Toys R Us barfed in it, you know, it just is like, oh, there's Christmas happened, okay, that's excellent, and so uh, we, we made it though, we're here, it's the last weekend of the year, um, and in our culture, this is actually important, because um, the, the, the customary thing for us to do is to save kind of the best for last, you know what I mean, like we keep things unique and special for the very end of whatever it might be. Think, for example, of a good meal. You might be going out on a date with your, your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend or someone you're just kind of interested in or whatever, and you get to the restaurant and you start off with like a salad, which is a waste of time, and then you get, you know, maybe something a little heartier in there, then you get an entree, but what we're all waiting for is dessert, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're just, you're just trying, you're just wasting, like you're, you're warming your jaw up is actually what's happening, right? You're just stretching the jaw out so that when dessert comes out, you're ready to go. It's like running a marathon and then the dessert comes, that last stretch and just victory and you're high-fiving people and it's awesome, right? Because you want to save the best for the very end. Think about a concert. If you go to a concert, uh, most of the time they'll have these warm-up bands, these people that are just kind of like getting the audience prepared for the real show, right? The, the seats are being filled so that when Coldplay comes out or U2 or Justin Bieber or whatever you're into, uh, Tim McGraw, I don't know what you guys like, uh, <laughs> Tim McGraw, is he even around? I don't even know. I've never listened to country music in my life, apparently. <laughs> Uh, unless Taylor Swift counts, but I don't think it does. And so um, that Trouble song, man, okay. So you save the best for the very end. You know what I'm talking about? Where I see this in my life is in a bowl of Lucky Charms. You pour yourself this delicious bowl, and you look at it, and you say, 50% of this is wasting my space. So you eat the cat food pieces first, and then what remains is this milky, marshmallowy goodness, and you can finally enjoy yourself because you have effectively saved the very best for last, right? If you were endured a very long 162-game season of baseball, the very end finishes with the what? The, the World Series. You hate baseball as much as I do, right? The World Series is, what that, is at the end of that. We save the best part of baseball for the very end. All of playoffs is actually pretty good. At the end of a long football season is the... 
Super Bowl coming up right next, so, uh, next month or so. And so um, next month is January, it'd be after that. And so we save the best for last in our culture. Now this weekend, I believe that we have saved the very best for last. Now I'm not that egotistical. I'm not trying to say that I have been saved for the best for you. No, I'm not trying to say that. But I am trying to say that what I believe that God has for us this morning um, is really critical for how we uh, look at the next year. Because if we get this weekend wrong, we are in danger of really starting off in the wrong way for 2013. If we can do well this morning, and we can look at this passage out of John chapter 2, I believe that what God has in store for us, we will be ready to take our, our, the right step into 2013. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, as I mentioned. You have an outline in your bulletin, which uh, just has the block of scripture on there and a lot of blank space. We're going to do a little bit of writing at the end of the service. Um, but if you need a Bible, there will be ushers coming down the aisles. Just raise your hand, give them a, a salute or a whistle or something like that, and they will be happy to give you one of those. If you don't have one, just keep that one, by the way. I don't know if that's allowed, but I just decided, so you can have it. All gift from me. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. We're going to jump into John chapter 2. Let me give you just a little bit of background. There's obviously not a lot that happened because there's only one chapter, but we just celebrated Christmas. Jesus uh, is born. You know, God sent us his son so that uh, you and I could be in a relationship with him again. And so Jesus is born. He then goes this, through this really miraculous baptism scene where uh, he gets um, sort of submerged and then what seems like a, a dove descending from heaven comes upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and the heavens open up and God proclaims, this is my son whom I love. This amazing scene that a few people get to witness. Then Jesus goes around as this very smart uh, teacher, what we call a rabbi. He goes around and he gathers some followers, these people that we know are the disciples. And they, they come and they follow him and they're learning from him. Now, the disciples don't exactly know what they're getting themselves into. They don't really know who Jesus is. They just know that no one else has selected them. And so they uh, have been called by a rabbi to come and to learn. And they say, absolutely, it's the greatest honor that you can bring your family uh, in a Jewish village. And so they start following Jesus. Now, they, uh, they end up here at the beginning of John chapter 2 at a wedding. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, on the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. So the responsibility of the host of a, a, a wedding or a banquet or of a, of a festival like this is twofold. One, that you never run out of enough food for everyone to eat. And number two, that you don't run out of wine. That's really your own responsi only responsibilities. If you ran out of these things, it would become a social disaster. You see, this wedding that's happening would have had the entire town present at it. It would have even had some people from neighboring towns. And it would last for days on end. And if that host would run out of food or run out of wine, it would be like tyranny. Like everyone, no, this is the worst party ever. And they would just get up and they would walk out. Mass exodus from the party. A couple years ago, my wife and I had heard that they redid the dragon at Disneyland in the Fantasmic show. 
right? There's this great show that's been around for a thousand years or something at Disneyland, and they have this dragon that shows up at the end of it. I remember it from my childhood and just thinking, yeah, it was kind of cool. It looked somewhat like a dragon, and everyone's like, you got to go see it. This thing is so unbelievable. So in my mind, I'm going, it's now a pterodactyl that flies up in the sky, like going all over the crowd, plucking children from the audience and like putting on a real show and then putting a parachute on them and dropping them back in their parents' laps and the kids giggling and it's awesome. And so I'm picturing this, right? So I say to my wife, we got to go see the new pterodactyl at Disneyland. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, fantastic. We got to go see it. So we go down there. We get there an hour and a half early because that's what you do at Disneyland. Apparently, it's like the DMV. You just have to show up very early. Disneyland and the DMV, by the way, are very similar, I'm realizing. You wait in long lines and you leave frustrated. So perfect. So anyway, we get there very early. We sit down in our little sliver of concrete and we just, we just wait like everybody else, right? And you hear the little voice, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest moment of your life is in one hour. Okay, excellent. I'm going to get a churro. You know what I'm talking about? And then you just keep sitting and you keep waiting. Ladies and gentlemen, the magic begins in 30 minutes. Oh, 30 more minutes. So the crowd's forming. You're getting claustrophobic. Everything's, you know, everything's kind of happening. And you're going, this dragon had better be worth it. That's all I'm thinking at this moment, right? Then finally, you know, the voice comes on. Hey, it's here. And then the show begins. The lights go down. The water starts shooting. The people are singing and dancing. Then Mickey comes out. He's got his little Mickey head on or whatever he's doing his thing, waving wands and dancing and spinning. And the smoke starts billowing in. And I'm going, this is it. I'm getting super excited. And right as the dragon appears, I kid you not, ladies and gentlemen, we apologize for the inconvenience, but we're experiencing technical difficulties. And so you're like, ah, and you just sit there, and you just wait, just sitting there, and everyone's kind of like, should we just go to Indiana Jones, or what do you want to do? And then you're, ladies and gentlemen, we're very sorry, but the show has been canceled this evening, and you're like, boo, this is the worst Disney show ever, and so everybody gets up, you know, frustrated, disgruntled, you just spend $1,000 on a hamburger, and it's like the worst moment of your life. Everyone gets up and leaves, right? You see, if you ran out of food or wine in the first century at a party, it would be just like Disneyland being unable to deliver a dragon in their show. So the whole crowd would have just been like, "That's uh, we're good, let's get up and go. Mary knew something, though. You see, Mary knew that something different was at this party. She knew that somebody very different was here. And for whatever reason, she knew that Jesus had the ability to, to solve this problem that they were having. She knew that if anybody could fix this problem, it was Jesus. So she looks at him and she says to him, hey, they, they have no more wine. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman? No. We look at it, we read it like that. Like, woman? No, he doesn't actually do that. He, it's, a, it's a term of endearment in this, in this time. My, my family um, has always, since I was a baby, has always called my grandma woman. I don't know why. It's just that's how it worked out. And so my grandma is woman. And so I just, I just saw woman at Christmas. And you walk up and you're like, woman, I love you. And you give her a big hug. And it's a term. <laughs> don't make fun of me. It's a term. <laughs> or my grandma, for that matter, because I don't like you if you make fun of my grandma. And so... Uh, it's a term of endearment in our family. It actually is in this, in this time as well. So Jesus looks at his mother and he says, woman, why do you involve me? This is not my problem. This is not my issue. Uh, this isn't my party, you know, whatever. And so he says this very cryptic sentence to her, something that she doesn't understand at the time. He says, my hour has not yet come. 
My time is not here. And what's amazing is John, the, the writer of this book, has sprinkled that line throughout the rest of the book of John. He, Jesus is get, gets in this tendency of saying, my time has not yet come. And everyone that he says that to doesn't really grasp what he means. But when we look back and we read, we find out that Jesus knew at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew that a time would come in which he would pay the ultimate price for his people that he would sacrifice, lay himself down so that you and I could have a relationship with God again. He knew that that time had come, but it had not yet come uh, yet. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus understood his mission far um, before it ever, uh, ever came to be. So look at what it says there. Um, Mary, Mary says, you know, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then she does something amazing. Look at verse number five. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You see, Mary asked Jesus of a favor, asked him to do something, and Jesus uh, responds with, you know, this is, not, this is not ready for me. So Mary has invited him to do something amazing, and yet many scholars would believe this is actually an undertone of Jesus saying, I don't take instructions from humans. In fact, I only do what my father tells me to do. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you. She puts the decision in Jesus' hands. And so that was enough for Jesus. So he looks and he says, uh, in verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used uh, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So outside of the, the, the wedding ceremony, there are these six ceramic, gigantic vats of water that hold 20 or 30 gallons each. And what you would do is, if you're part of the Jewish tradition, you would, before you walked into the party, in front of everyone to see, you would dip your hands in the water, and you would kind of wash them off, and then you would kind of shake the water, and then you would enter into the party. We know that that is not a, a real cleanliness thing. It's not actually, they're kind of, they're rinsing their hands off, but... The more important thing is by the law of Moses, they are being ceremonially clean. They are showing that they are pure, that they are, are in a line with what God desires for them. So it's really a show. It's something that they're doing to just say, look, I'm, I'm a part of this group too. And then they're able to walk in. Now Jesus looks at those, those vats of water that have been emptied, right? The, the people of all, the whole town has washed their hands in these jars. And he says, let's take one of those jars, fill it up with new water, and I'm going to do something amazing. He looks at those, those symbols of tradition. He looks at those jars and he says, this right here encapsulates thousands of years of people trying to follow God. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that tradition and I'm going to usher in the new kingdom of God using this right here. It's an unbelievable picture of Jesus taking something so common, so familiar to his people and saying, I'm going to use this to show you that I am unbelievably uncommon. That I am here to do something so different, so fresh, so new that you don't even understand who is at this party with you. So he looks at those things. He says, fill the, fill the water up and then uh, dip in kind of a, 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 like a ladle, get some water out and um, bring it to the host of the party. So the, the servants have, have kind of watched what's happened take place. So they do it. And look what it says in verse 9. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called to the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, 
and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. An unbelievable statement. You have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Critical sentence, and his disciples believed in him. It's a beautiful story of God saying, I am not okay with what's going on in the world. You see, that guy makes a pretty amazing statement. You've you've saved the best for last. And wine, it doesn't make sense to save your very best stuff to the very end. You know where else it doesn't make sense? C's candy. You know what I'm talking about? You guys like C's candy? What's your favorite C's candy? Can I get let me get an example from this side over here? What is it? Bordeaux. A bo- mine too. Yes. Let's go share a two-pound box of Bordeaux together. Okay, a Bordeaux, what about this size? Anybody have another one that's better? Not true. They're not Scotch Mellows aren't better. Those are my wife's favorite, and this is this is amazing. This is an eternal <laughs> battle that my wife and I go through. I'm like Scotch Mellows is like a 40-day-old marshmallow living in it, while the Bordeaux is just butter and chocolate. Awesome, right? Now imagine, you're sitting, Christmas time, we're all drowning in C's candy anyway, right? They make all their business in one week alone. Maybe Easter too, I don't know. But, but um, uh, you look at the box and it opens up and you see that golden sticker come off the edge, right? And you know that somewhere in there is a Bordeaux if you're a good person and a Scotch Mallow if you're not. And you know that somewhere in there is your favorite C's candy. So what do you do? You know, I'm going to save the best for last. I'm just going to let it simmer in there for a little longer. I'm just going to let it steep in the goodness of all the other chocolate, you know? No, you would never do that because you know that some other vulture is going to swoop in and pick off your favorite. So when that golden sticker opens up, you dive in with both hands and you're finding your favorite one. Then... Once you have had 15 or so Bordeaux, you have you entered into a delicious chocolate coma, and now you're willing to eat the other C's, the ones that have fruit inside of them or something, like, you know, orange marmalade or whatever they put in those things, and you're like, yeah, I don't even, okay, I don't care, it's still C's, it's good. You know what I mean? Because you've had your fill. It doesn't make any sense in C's candy to save your very favorite till the end. And it doesn't make sense with wine either. But what I know about this story is that it actually has absolutely nothing to do with wine. While Jesus happens to show that he is a master over details and time by making some of the best wine this guy has ever had, he knew that something was so different about this wine While it might show that, the real reason is found in the statement that this guy makes. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. You see, God looked at our world and he said, I see the pain, I see the brokenness, and I'm not okay with that. In Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve had the privilege of walking side by side with God, talking face to face with the creator of the universe, an intimacy that you and I uh, will not understand this side of heaven. They had this unbelievable relationship with God, and they, in Genesis chapter 3, made a terrible decision that created a catastrophic separation between us and God. We were no longer able to be in the presence of God. Because of the sin that entered into our world. God, since that day, has been on a reconciliation mission for us. He has been sending prophet 
after prophet after prophet for thousands of years, speaking his word to his people, saying, I am the Lord your God. Do this and we can be in relationship with again. And every one of them had failed to some degree. None of them was able to accomplish the goal that God had for us, the relationship that he desired for us. And so God saved the best for last. He knew that his own son, Jesus, who was at his right hand, he knew that he was the only one that could accomplish what he wanted to do. So he sent us Jesus in the midst of pain, in the midst of oppression. He sent us his son. And he is born in extremely humble birth to a poor people living in a terrible town under the oppression of the Roman government. He sends Jesus to the most common place possible. He sends him to the lowest of the low. And it is there that Jesus does the unbelievably uncommon thing. You see, Jesus stands in the gap between the old Jewish tradition and now this new kingdom of God that he is ushering in. Jesus is the final messenger, the final prophet, the final savior that God has planned for us, for you and I, the final gift. In story language, This is the inciting moment in the story of Jesus. An inciting moment in the story, any book you've ever read, every movie you've ever seen, has a moment in which the lead character, the protagonist, is thrust into action. In fact, if you don't have an inciting moment, you don't have a story because no story ever begins, right? So let's think about some of our favorite movies, like perhaps The Wizard of Oz is your favorite movie of all time, right? Um, there, you start in the beginning, you, you, hear some, you meet some characters, you meet Dorothy and your family, but then there's an inciting moment. It's a tornado that sweeps through the town, and all of a sudden, Dorothy is in a new place. She is thrust into action. If you think about the movie Jaws, right? There are people living in some small town in Florida. I don't actually remember. And they're out there. Florida doesn't make sense for a giant shark, by the way. But anyway, so they're out there. And all of a sudden, the inciting moment is when a girl gets eaten by a shark. Story begins. An unbelievable, uh, you know, tale of chasing after a 9,000-foot shark or something. Lord of the Rings, Frodo finds this ring and he begins this epic journey. Um, Bond movies, anybody James Bond fans? I'm a big James Bond fan. You know the inciting moment of a James Bond movie? The first second of the film when a guy is running and an airplane is flying over, cars are flipping upside down. It's insane what happens in that movie. But the story is off and running immediately. In the Gospels, this moment is the inciting moment in the story of Jesus. Because what happens next is an unbelievable thrill ride of God loving his people. Jesus shows up and he begins to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is here. Then he starts to demonstrate it by healing people, by raising people from the dead, by feeding thousands upon thousands of people, which was impossible at that time. Jesus demonstrates that God is in your presence. God is here and he is doing something new. Here's what I know from this story. That when God is invited in, he will give you nothing short of his absolute best. And we can guarantee that transformation will happen. We can guarantee it. Think of the transformation that happened in this story, right? Jesus does this unbelievable thing where he turns water into the best wine anyone there has ever tasted. Then he begins a public ministry in which the world is transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a crazy thing. 
Um, growing up, I was a very common person, a very normal, very average. I was abnormally tall, as you can tell, but I was very average uh, in all other things. I was not very good at basketball, although I probably should have been. I was not a very good student. Um, I was uh, just okay at music. I was just okay at baseball. I had no special skills. I couldn't fly. couldn't move things with my mind. A just total normal kid, okay? I had a graduating class in high school of 825 people, and I just sunk into the crowd. Nothing real special about me. Until I uh, turned 18 years old and I got invited to something. I got invited to this thing called a winter camp to go uh, hear about this person of Jesus, which I wanted nothing to do of, with up until that point. I showed up at this camp and I sat in the 12th row on the left-hand side of this chapel on a snowy Saturday night up in Big Bear. And I heard the story of Jesus for the very first time. And I was overwhelmed by the love that God had for me. I mean, it was like, what? I'm nothing. I'm literally, there's nothing different about me than any other person in here. I'm nothing special, nothing unique. I'm so common. And yet, this man was telling me that Jesus died for me, and I was overwhelmed. And so I was compelled to step forward and give my life to Jesus that night. Now, you know what? That moment changed the trajectory of my life. But the real inciting moment in my life was when about six months later I ended up in this little prayer chapel and I was instructed by my youth pastor to look at the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and to pray this prayer, speak Lord, your servant is listening. And I started praying that over and over again. And I started to feel God say to me, Jared, you're going to go into ministry. And that made no sense to me. I had really no comprehension of what ministry was. And I felt like God said, you're going into ministry. And the reason I know it was God is because of how much I started crying afterwards. I was just weeping, weeping over the thought of, of God speaking to me and God saying, I have a plan. I have something for you. I was overwhelmed by this. Now, I would love to say to you that in that moment, my life was transformed in remarkable ways. I, I didn't sin again. In fact, I didn't even walk again. I just floated right out that chapel. I was able to zap people with Jesus' power, you know? Um, you know like, that did not happen. None of that happened. But a transformation began in me that day, where I began to understand that it is actually possible to experience peace in the midst of chaos. I began to realize for the first time that it really is possible to experience joy in the midst of extreme pain or suffering. I began to realize that it is possible to love your enemies. You see, God, when he was invited into my life, a transformation took place. The great news is, is in the last 12 years, I have had so many inciting moments in my story where I have invited God in and change occurred. I have invited God into specific areas of my life and something different happened. What's amazing is that Jesus is in the business of taking the, less, the leftovers, the broken, the outcasts, the people that are just trying to figure out if they can even survive 2013. They, he takes us, the common, the normal, the average people, and he shows us uncommon love, uncommon mercy, uncommon forgiveness which leads us to an uncommon life this is the journey that you and I are on together if you're here and you're like I've never never experienced anything like this like if you feel like man I need that come and find me or one of our pastors afterwards we would love to talk with you more about this but for others of us we've been on a journey for a little while perhaps you are in need of an inciting moment Perhaps you are in need of remembering what it is that God has done in your life. So what I'd love to do, just in our last few moments together, is to think back 
at this last year that we're about to finish, 2012. Think back at this year, all the circumstances you found yourself in, all of the relationships that you've been in, um, employment things, whatever it is. Where is it that you invited God into something and you saw some kind of transformation take place? What inciting moment happened in your life in 2012? I want to give you a little bit of space. There's room on your outline. I'd love for you to write this down. Write down that moment in this past year where you felt like God provided for you, where God maybe healed or restored a relationship. Um, God gave you peace in the midst of something. What is it in your life that God was invited into and transformation took place? Take a second and think about that. As you think it through, I'll tell you mine. Um, I have a couple, but about eight months ago, my wife and I were just praying about our, our job at the church at Mariners and just kind of, God, what direction do you have us in and, and, and where are we heading? And I just felt God saying, I, I'm with you. Just keep, keep going at it. Um, and we, we had very specific prayers that we had uh, for God, things that we were asking, inviting him into. And it was just two weeks ago, actually, that God um, uh, sort of, began that transformation. We waited patiently for like eight months and um, got news just a couple weeks ago that my, uh, my wife and I have the opportunity to go and pastor our high school ministry now. And so I went from overseeing the junior high ministry to now moving into a place of high school ministry. It's a big change for my wife and I. It's something we're super excited about. And a, and a thing that we've been praying about all, really almost all year long, just, God, what is it that you have for us? We invited God in and something changed. Another one for us, uh, for, for whatever reason, 2012 was just filled with loss in our life. My, my wife and I attended way too many funerals this year. Um, and it's, it actually started the first day of 2012. On New Year's Day, um, we found out that a, a member of our high school team, a dear friend of mine, a, a guy that I've known since he was in junior high, um, he passed away. And it was this, this really terrible thing that... Um, we're still, I'm still dealing with, apparently. And um, it was in that that I, I really invited God in to show me what peace might look like in the midst of pain. And for whatever reason, we went through a lot of loss in 2012. We went through too many funerals, and I was able to invite God in and say, God, would you help me to understand? Would you help me to experience peace? And my inciting moment happened a lot this year, that I understood peace in the midst of loss. What is it for you? Where did you invite God in and you started to experience some kind of transformation? Look at what it says in Psalm 111, verses 3 and 4. It says, Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. That's how I want to think of 2012. I want to think of God's wondrous and compassionate deeds. Now, however 2012 went for you, I have great news. The best is yet to come. That God is still on the move. He is not finished with you. God is excited about where you are going, and he just wants to be invited in. I was at a memorial service about a month ago, 
And I heard an incredible story of this elderly lady who went up to her pastor. And she says, when I die, I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. And he was like, okay, no idea why. That's kind of strange. Help me understand that. She says, every time I go to a, a restaurant and they tell me to keep my fork, I get excited. He says, why do you get excited? She goes, because if I keep my fork, I know that there's still something good to come. I know something better is going to be right in front of me in a minute. And so as this beautiful statement, she says, I want to be buried with the fork because I know that after this life, the best is yet to come. There is more. There is something to hope for. There is something to wait for. It's a beautiful thing. Let's look at 2013. Where do you need to hope for God's presence to be? What is it in your life that you need to invite God in and allow him to begin a transformation? Perhaps it's your marriage. Maybe something's going on in the house. Maybe something you don't even want to verbalize. Invite God in. Maybe it's a relationship with a, a coworker, a colleague, a, a son or a daughter. Invite God into that relationship. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's dealing with a loss of employment or un unable to find a job. Invite God in. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's something that you feel completely out of control. Maybe it's terrible news that you got from the doctor or a family member got from the doctor. Invite God in. You are one invitation away from experiencing God's transformative power. Invite him in. Allow him to do what he does best. I want to live like somebody who has a fork in one hand and says, I know that the best is yet to come. Because if I invite God in, he will give me nothing short of his best. What is that for you? What is that for you? Would you write that down? Whatever it is, you could put a couple words down, write it down. There's, I believe there's power in writing this down. You were, you were taking it just from a thought to actually solidifying it. Would you write that down underneath what you wrote about 2012? Write down that thing that you're hoping for in 2013. I wrote down um, that, that God would really help me in my finances. Not that I would make more money, but that I would actually be more generous with what he has given me. I've been really overwhelmed with this thought of how do I become a generous person? that I know that God has given me everything and I want to I give, that, give that to other people as well. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm inviting God into an inciting moment in my life, a turning point, a change that I could become a more generous giver um, uh, to the people around me and things like that. What is it for you? Would you write that down? And here's the most important part to this, that you and I would have the posture of Mary, Jesus' mother in this story, Right? She knows that Jesus can do whatever needs to be done. She knows that. And so she brings it to his attention, and then she waits. She hopes. She anticipates. But the decision is in Jesus' hands. Give him the authority. Give him the power. Give him the opportunity to transform. And in his time, he will. God will give you nothing short of his best. Here's what I'd love to do in our last couple minutes. Um, there, there's power in singing to God, in worshiping him. And as we think about this opportunity to invite God into some of the most dangerous or difficult parts of our life, 
I would love for us to stand together and to, to invite God by singing these words, come, Lord Jesus, come into our life. Invite him in. So would you stand with us as we sing these words together?